So I don't know if you know this or not, but well, I do know that you know that there's like a gazillion different departments in the government, right? And so uh, one of them is under the uh, government of commerce, there is one called the Division of Weights and Measurements. So years ago when I uh, graduated from Geneva College, I, I got this job at Wiley Hill Baptist Church. It's this tiny little church in Elwood City up on top of Wiley Hill. So if any of you have been in Elwood City, you know what I'm talking about. And, um, and so, you know, so uh, bringing with me my vast amount of life experience and, uh, you know, all of the education that I could assemble from uh, four years and 30-some thousand dollars uh, of an education, I applied myself to this little church in Wiley Hill, Hellwood City. And I brought my new wife with me, too. So even more experience uh, and, uh, and wisdom and things like that as well. So, so we didn't know anything, um, but we, we, gave, we, we did. We worked hard there and, and tried to do our best. But, as, but it, was a, it was a tiny little church, so we had to, we had to supplement our income with a little part-time job uh, that I worked at a quick-fill gasoline station. And, uh, and, and I worked for, and, and the manager of that gasoline station went to my store, so it was always that weird, awkward relationship. Like when, I, when we were at church, I was kind of like the person in charge, but when she, I was there, she was like kind of the person in charge. And so it was just kind of an odd thing. But every time it was like, if I worked at night, every time that we shut the station down, I had to take a, a tablet out with me and I had to go rain, shine, bitter cold, didn't matter. I had to go and read the pumps. And you had to read this little tiny, like, I don't know, like, I don't know who designed this little tiny thing that you could barely see recessed back in, but it gave you all the numbers of how much, how many gallons of gasoline you pumped that day. And all of that had to, it, it had to square with how much you charged and how much, you know, like they sold you and uh, so it all had to square, and it all fell under the division of weights and measurements of the government. Because if you're off on that, and you pump a lot of gas, even, even if you're off by a couple of cents per gallon or whatever, you, you're, either, you're either cheating yourself or you're cheating somebody else. Does this make sense to everybody? And, and you could do a lot of things, but one thing you could not do was you could not mess up that number. That was like like almost from God. You could not mess up that number. So, um, uh, so it, it made an impression upon me uh, that, that, you know, as I was doing that, I said, well, what, what happens if it begins to, like, you know, the, the, the pump and it begins to, like, go bad or whatever? Well, you have to get it fixed. Because if you don't get it fixed, then you're probably cheating your customers out of, you know, they're paying more for what they are not getting. How do you fix it? Well, they fix it by, and in fact, they test it every so often by recalibrating the machine. And so, as it turns out, anything, anything that has a measurement that's connected to commerce has to be tested and recalibrated on a regular basis. 
anything. So that there is this standard that every gasoline pump has to um, be, has to comport itself to. That there's a standard of what a cup really is. There's a standard of what a length really is. And all of that falls under uh, the Department of Commerce, the Division of Weights and Measurements. The clocks that you and I uh, use are all, they're all based on a thing called the atomic clock. Every clock in the world is based on the atomic clock. So when you wake up uh, in the morning and, and it's been fall back or spring forward or whatever, and the clock on your phone changes, it's in accordance with that atomic clock. In your vehicles, it's in accordance with that atomic clock. It's all based on that. And if so, when your clock is off, your watch, then, and you see what the standard is, then you recalibrate your watch according to what the atomic clock says the time really is. There is a standard. And so it is for the Christian. There is a standard. There is a standard by which we comport our lives to. And it is sacrosanct. In fact, it is even more demanding than anything the government could level in terms of weights and measurements. And so there are certain things that we apply to our lives to recalibrate our life so that we are, we are back uh, you know, uh, in accordance where we move back closer to being in accordance with how we are supposed to live and exercise and be in this life. And so this series is really about recalibrating, exercising these mechanisms so that we can be in more compliance with how we are supposed to be. So the problem is, is that unless you, you bump into somebody who's you know, mentally deranged, none of us are perfect. And so we have this problem called sin, total depravity uh, in our lives, and there isn't anything that we can do perfectly. Nothing. There isn't anything that we can do perfectly. Even our best effort, no matter how good it is, it's always off by some degree because none of us embrace the fullness of Christ-likeness in our lives. But that's the standard. The standard is Christ-likeness. And, so, um, and so that's what God uh, calls us to and holds us to. Now, I think, I suspect, most everybody here knows that. We know that we are not Christ-like. We know that we are not perfect. We know that we don't meet the standard. And by the way, I don't know if you know this. So when the books of the Bible were picked... Uh, the term for picking it was canonicity. According to the canon. And the Greek word canon means a measurement. So does it hold to the standard? And so when the Bible, when the various books of the Bible were assembled in the third and fourth centuries, it was according to the canon. 
the measurement of what the church applied in terms of deciding whether or not they met the standard to be included in, uh, in the whole of the biblical text. So there's a canon for us, and that canon is Christ-likeness. So all of us then should be fascinated, not just maybe even disturbed or perturbed or, or, or whatever, but we should be fascinated with what it means for us to live uh, according to the canon, to the Christ-likeness of, God, uh, of the standard that God has for us. All of it. I, I think that's a better word. I mean, it's good to be convicted. It's good to feel guilty about it. It's, those, are all, those can all be very good things, but at the end of the day, it's more positive and more helpful to say, what do I need to do? What, what about my life do I need to change in order to become more Christ-like and to be fascinated with that question? Because I think if it's just conviction, if it's just guilt, then it's kind of a negative thing. It's something that I have to do. It's done out of duty. But if we're fascinated, it's more like, you know, I really think that comporting my life over into the image of Jesus Christ through the power and the help of the Holy Spirit in, in being obedient to him as he leads me and guides me in that way, I really think that's, that's a really good thing, and I want to be that. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and reveals to us a way in which there ought to be some change about our life, after the guilt and after the conviction... Is our heart like, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Well, I didn't see that before about myself before, but now I see it. And now I see a better way to become more like this person, Jesus Christ. To overcome the sin that I keep on doing, that I don't want to do, that I'm not always aware that I do do, but now I'm aware. And I want to overcome this sin that continues to eat away at me and to compromise my nature and who I am as a person. So we should always be fascinated with what it means for us to live our lives optimally as a Christian. Optimally. And you know, the world in many ways is so dark. Like, I'll just take a little rabbit trail here. What happened, regardless of what you think of the Palestinian situation, what happened to those 1,200 Israelites, Jews, it's a special kind of hate. I mean, it is a deep and abiding hate that you could give yourself permission to do what you did to those people. I mean, it's so disturbing. And I'm saying to you, if the world can be that dark and that ominous and that horrific, do any of us really think that those of us who kind of play at being a Christian could ever hope to change and bring light to that kind of darkness? I mean, if that darkness is that substantive and that intense, do any of us really think that unless it's met with an equal kind of substantiveness and intensity of Christ-likeness, is there any hope of changing that? I don't think there is. 
So if we are not living our Christian lives optimally, then why not? Why not? And what can we do to change that? So, and I'm just going to review this because, you know, we, we have people in and out here each Sunday, and I'm going to just shoot through this pretty fast to catch everybody up. So my first question that I offered several weeks ago, what is or are the primary and reoccurring sins in our life that break the standard that God has for us, that we need to recalibrate in our life? And what are those issues, those specific sin issues? And so I offered to you these 10 things, apathy, complacency, ignorance, purpose, purposelessness, priorities, fear, rebellion, self-righteousness, bondage, and oppression. These things get in the way of our ability to meet the standard. They get in, these are, these are, the, are often the primary things from which we need to recalibrate our life. And so the second question is, why do those sins reoccur and are still there? How do we overcome those primary sins in order to live a life in Christ? And so I offer to you the following things. The first thing that we have to do is repentance. That repentance has to be a regular practice of the Christian faith. Repentance. And I'm fairly certain throughout the whole of the church, repentance is not a regular practice. And so I offer to you the anatomy of what repentance looks like. Because you see, sin alienates us from God. Sin alienates us from God. And so, uh, and this is the list that I gave. So, awareness and, il and illumination of sin, it involves the mind. Guilt, the acknowledgement of sin, that also involves the mind. Conviction, okay, well, okay, th this is true. I must change this thing about myself. And so, um, in that change, it involves the mind. Confession is this intellectual engagement with God where we admit to him that we have this sin in our life and it needs to change. But then after confession must come contrition. It must come. Because without contrition, without this angst of I was wrong, I have grieved you, without that, those other things probably will not change. And they probably and even if they do change, they are probably unsustainable because our heart has not engaged the wrongness of the sin in our life. And so after contrition comes forgiveness, the asking for absolution, the removal of our sins. And then repentance, there is the change of action. I am going to, I am not going to do this thing again. I'm moving in the opposite direction. And so that daily thing where we, where we repent of our sins before the Lord, either in the morning or evening or during the day, and we finally arrive, like, you know, after running through this kind of list, we finally arrive at, like, I, am, I have got to change this thing about my life. And so when we do, then we are restored closer into the relationship that we have with God. So then the second thing I talked about was the heart. And, and so our heart has to be involved when it comes to the recalibrating of our faith. Most Protestants in particular live out their faith in an, in an intellectual kind of way. 
For some reason, there is this distancing of the heart in their relationship with God. And so, and I know many, uh, many Protestants who, that because they have a good theology, they therefore conclude they have a good relationship with God. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. I've said to you before, most theologians in Western civilization are not, by self-identification, are not Christians. Most theologians are not Christians. They know a lot about God. Most of them know a lot more about God than I know about God. But they, by their own admission, are not Christians. So just because we know a lot about God does not ensure, does not guarantee that we know God. Most people who miss heaven miss it by about 12 inches. It's here, but it's not in here. I remember taking a class from J.I. Packer at uh, Trinity and J.I. Packer would be one of the leading theologians of the 20th century who was a believer. And he was talking about theology and the Greek word for theology is theologia. And he said originally when uh, the early church fathers used the word theologia, what it meant was to know God in such a way that what you knew became a part of you. To know God in such a way that what you knew became a part of you. So it moved from, these are the philosophical terms, it moved from the episteme, the epistemological, the knowing, to the ontology, the being. But it seems to be, there seems to be this barrier for many quasi-believers or believers, whatever you want to call them, where they know, but all that they know isn't filtered into what they are, into the being of who they are. So the heart is so vital and so important. It has to do with our growth and maturation in Christ, our ability to produce fruit for Christ, and ultimately determines our punishment or rewards before Christ. Solomon, one of the wisest men in the whole world, said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So if we're going to recalibrate our life, we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard what's in there. We have to grow what's in there that's good and that's Christ-likeness. And so I offer to you these two, these two important lists, and I put them together and said, this, in this next slide, Reconciling these two important lists, uh, if you can hit the next one, that, yep, we got to reconcile these. That all of the, the sin that may part, be part of our, the reoccurring, the endemic, uh, the foundationalized kind of sin that's in our lives, the apathy, complacency, ignorance, purposelessness, the priorities, fear, rebellion, self-righteousness, bondage, and oppression, all of that has to be confronted by repentance on a regular basis. And if we don't, then we're playing with God 
And God is not a person to be trifled with. Matthew tells us in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure, there your heart will be also. And so some of us hold on to these treasures. Some of us, the treasures of a negative heart. There are treasures of a negative heart. The things people hold on to that they build their life around. The treasures of being wounded. They treasure being wounded. Being bitter, angry, hard, dull, conflicted, critical, arrogant, and curmudgeonly. Those are treasures. Those are things that people oftentimes refuse to change. And then there are the pathological treasures of the heart that we must surrender. Our failures, our disappointments, our regrets, our anger, rage, grudges, resentments, the failures of others, the past and current conflicts that we have endured and been a part of. All of these are treasures that people hold on to and have in their life, and they have to go. They get in the way. They are not Christ-like. And for some of us, we must do what Joel talked about in Joel 2.13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And so what, what Joel is talking about here is in that culture when people uh, uh, were uh, upset or um, they felt as if they had violated God's law in some kind of a significant way, they would rend their garments in regret, and they would just rip them. And so, you know, ripping their garments was a lot different than you and I ripping our garments, because they only had one or two pairs of something. So to rend their garments made that thing useless. It was a sacrifice. But Joel says, I want you to do something even more. I want you to rend your hearts. Because at some point back then, people would rend their garments because it looked holy. It looked good. It looked, it was. But to rend our hearts before God because of some treasure that we hold on to. Where our treasure is, there our heart. And so all that list that I gave you that if we can't give those things up, then it's probably because we need to rend our hearts over those issues, the grudges, the rage, the failures, and the like. So I'm going to come to a third thing then. And I want to talk to you about a thing called constancy. Now, constancy is not necessarily a biblical word, but it is a word that captures a lot of words that are similar to it that you would find in the Bible. Here are some other words for constancy. Steadfast, perseverance, commitment, determination, dedication, endurance, unwavering, I have dedication in there twice, sorry. So I'm going to put uh, the next one, then I'll put uh, um, unfailing, invariableness, consistency, durability, reliability, devotion, trueness. 
These are all synonyms that capture the whole of what constancy is. So if we're going to recalibrate our heart, Christians must do better at constancy. They must be better at steadfastness. They must be better at perseverance. They must be better in their commitment. They must be better in their determination. They must be better in their dedication. They have to do better in, 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 in their endurance. They have to be better at being unwavering. They have to do better at being in their invariableness, their consistency. In their constancy, they have to do better in durability, reliability, devotion, and trueness. Constancy as a principle and practice is overtly addressed directly and indirectly in almost all of the 66 books of the Bible. Constancy is a dominant theme in almost every book of the entire Bible. Now, if you go to your, your study Bible and they do like the author, like in the beginning before each book, they give you an overview of the author, the time and the date, the purpose for the book, and why it was written. You will not find the word constancy there. But you will find themes that they talk about that have everything in the world to do with constancy. So I'm giving you a general term that captures the whole of that entire list that I just gave to you. The lack of constancy is responsible for almost every judgment in the Old Testament and every warning and admonition in the New Testament. The lack of constancy is responsible for almost every judgment in the Old Testament. So if you read the great prophets or the minor prophets, or even if you read the wisdom literature, which would be Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. If you read all of those books, this idea of constancy, of being faithful, of being true, always, of being consistent, of being reliable, always, the ability to follow through consistently <coughs> and persistently throughout the whole of our Christian life, throughout the whole of the church life. That has been one of the most elusive things in the history of the church, constancy. The Lord does not want us to, to be like, and James talks about this, how some believers were susceptible to every whim of philosophy that would come along, and they would go back and forth like the waves and the wind, James would say. And God wants no part of that. Constancy is one of the primary and missing ingredients behind every major failure of the institutional church and every Christian who has ever lived our ability to hold to our constancy, to be consistent, to be faithful, to be true. And look, it doesn't really in many respects have anything to do with, I mean, look, you, this, this has an application outside of the Christian faith. 
Just how patient are you with a person that is unpredictable? That you ask them to do something. I, I can tell you personally, as a pastor, over the years, I, I would go to some people and I'd say, look, I, I really need you to do this particular thing on this particular day. It's really important. Can you do this? Can I count on you? Absolutely. I would remind them several times. The day would arrive. I'd get a text or a call. Hey, I'm sorry I can't be there. I've got to rearrange my sock drawer. And I just have to do that instead. But you've worked with people who are that way. People who are unreliable. People that, that contract with you to work for you, to do a certain thing in a certain way, and they don't do it. Does that make you happy or does that make you sad? Does that frustrate you? You have contracted with contractors. Will you fix this thing? Will you, do, will you build that, that particular thing? Yes, I will. What day? On this day. Is this what you will do? Yes, it is. It will be done by this time. Has anybody here had a problem with a contractor in that way? Or a business? No, we have some wonderful contractors here, so I'm not speaking to you. Jerry. <laughs> Whoever else. Uh, basically, Rocky does a lot of contracting and other people here, but, but you know what I'm talking about. And Jerry, you've heard about it before, right, from other people. And Rocky, you've heard about it. And sometimes you, you're just like, well, I mean, you pay the price for what other people did. We hate it when there isn't constancy in other people's lives. And it frustrates the Lord when there is not constancy in our life. And it hurts the world when they see us going back to and fro in our Christian life and not being consistent with how we live our life. It damages our witness. Now, I have a lot more to say about constancy, and I only have about seven minutes left, so I'm probably, I have enough material here for the next three weeks, so I'm not going to try and jam it all in today. But I wanted to just give you three powerful examples of constancy. There are many more. These are just three powerful biblical examples. Here's one that has to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this text in Isaiah 50. Remember, Isaiah is the great messianic prophet in the Old Testament. Where the Lord, or where Isaiah seems to be pointing to Jesus into the future by saying, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So we read then, about 800 years later, in Luke 9:51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some biblical texts say he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. This is constancy. Regardless of the circumstances, he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be consistent. He was going to fulfill his obligation. And then we read in Luke 22, 41 through 44, 
where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, constancy. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then then his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground, constancy. He was going to follow through on what his obligation and his commitment was. And thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us, despite the pain that you were experiencing. For those of you who have your Bibles, and if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is just one of the great, great passages of constancy that you will read uh, in the biblical text. So he is comparing himself to those false apostles, to people who claim to be believers and followers and teachers and authorities for Jesus Christ, but they did not have the constancy that Paul had. And so he illustrates that by saying this, but whatever else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. And so the Apostle Paul talks about the evidence of his constancy. And because of that kind of constancy, for many historians, some of them rate the Apostle Paul as even more influential than Jesus Christ when it comes to the advancement of the Christian faith. I think they're wrong, but I'm saying to you that it was because of what the Apostle Paul did in this way that he elevated himself in his constancy by how he established the church throughout the, the whole of the Mediterranean basin that you and I have benefited magnificently from. It was because of his constancy and the work of Jesus Christ that you and I live and have the faith that we do in Jesus Christ. You you might say, well, I could never do that. You're probably not called to do that. But I can tell you this. There are probably many, many, many Christians in the early church that would love to have the advantages that we have that they did not have, that they were more constant, and yet we struggle. And we'll get into why that might be. And then here's a text that I think is just really, this is a text that that has been a, a favorite of mine. I think it's a text that you can put up on a placard or 
a, a poster or a picture or something like that. I, I just think it's a really helpful text. So this is from Proverbs as well. And it reads, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. This is a picture. This is a picture of constancy that we all must and need to have for ourselves and for the world. And so I'm just going to give you, uh, it says four, but there really are five, five essential areas of constancy. I'm just going to tell you what they are, and these are the things that we'll be unpacking for the next few weeks. So the first one that we're going to be talking about is constancy in our purpose. So we're going to spend some time being, being consistent about the purpose that God has for each and every one of us. Constancy in the fruit of the Spirit, which I've spoken on. I have a series on it. If you haven't, you can look it up online, but I'm pretty thorough in that particular, uh, in that particular series. So if you want to listen to that, you can. But constancy in the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit being our ethic by which we live. Our ethic. Our constitution. Number three, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Constancy in the exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you know, and per Per the earlier reading of uh, the gospel reading that Frank did, what happens to the person who does not use their gift or their talent? What happens? It's taken away. And he is declared worthless. The gift. So I'm going to talk about 17 gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then the biblical virtues. There are some virtues that the Apostle Paul talks about, I believe, in Philippians. We're going to spend some time on the biblical virtues. You know, are we virtuous in this way and how that way will make us more constant in our faith? And then I'm going to spend time on the spiritual disciplines. Um, and I'll be taking a lot of those from Foster, but so they're not... They're not, I'm not deriving them directly, you know, as I'm packing from some book or whatever, but these are practices of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years that enable us to do well and better in our constancy. So in conclusion, I, I really encourage you all, and myself included, that we engage this. We have an opportunity beginning today to repent of our lack of constancy. We have an opportunity to determine for ourselves that we will be more disciplined. We will be more consistent. We will be more reliable. We will be more persistent. We will endure and we will thrive regardless of what goes on in the world around us. We will overcome the sin in our life. We will become more Christ-like. We are determined. We will be constant. 
we will.